you please turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. This evening we come to a section that is going to be covered with a number of sermons. Um, There's a lot here, but we're going to delve into it this evening. So 2 Thessalonians 2, I'd like to read verses 1 through 14. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is commonly said by Christians of a premillennial bent that the Lord could come at any moment. The name premillennialism comes from the belief that Jesus will return pre, that is, before the millennium, before a literal 1,000-year reign on earth. The premillennialists believe that the Lord's coming will be to secretly rapture his people from earth and bring them to heaven. Those left behind, you probably recognize those words, left behind, the left behind book series um, is of a premillennial bent. Uh, Those left behind, we are told, will have to endure the great tribulation for seven years, and then Jesus will return a third time with his people in order to set up his 1,000-year reign in Jerusalem. Those who believe in this second secret coming of the Lord in the rapture, say the Lord could come today, could come at any moment since there are no known or predicted events that must take place before Christ returns. And the rapture is said to be God's way of sparing believers from unpleasant events like a time of apostasy under the Antichrist. Meanwhile, unbelievers are left behind to go through a time of tribulation under the Antichrist with the hope that they will take advantage of a second chance to repent. Well, this view is contrary to the teaching of Scripture on several counts. 
First of all, the Bible does not teach a premillennial rapture of believers. Though what Paul describes back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 and 18, could be called a form of rapture. I'd like to have us read that, um, that section. Um, I preached on that some time ago. Um, 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 18. It says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do, who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up, there's the rapture idea, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. What stands out about this rapture that the Apostle Paul is talking about is that this is no premillennial rapture. This is not a secret coming of Christ, but rather a very public and, we might add, noisy coming. It's a coming as well in which the dead are resurrected. It's a coming in which those believers who are on earth will be caught up together with the believers who have already died, and the result is that all believers will be with the Lord. This is not the rapture of premillennialism. This is the rapture of Christ's second and final return, as the Lord gathers all of his people to himself as part of the last judgment. There is nothing in these verses or in any other passage in scripture that supports the idea of unbelievers being given a second chance to repent after Christ's return. There is nothing in these verses about the Lord reigning on earth from Jerusalem for 1,000 years. Other scriptures make clear that the gathering of believers by Christ at his coming is a matter of separating believers from unbelievers who are then judged and then unbelievers cast into hell. And rather than earthly life going on as before, the Lord at his coming will destroy this earth in order to transform it into a new earth where righteousness dwells. Second, the Bible does not teach three comings of Christ. There is the Lord's first coming in his birth and ministry, There's the Lord's second coming, which is said in Scripture to be near and to be at hand, and we are told will take place in a very public way. Scripture nowhere teaches a secret coming of the Lord prior to his returning publicly in glory. And third, the Bible does not teach us that the coming of Christ could be at any moment. It teaches us that there will be events that we as believers are to look for as signs leading up to Christ's coming. The coming of the Lord is said in Scripture to be near, but it is not said to be imminent in the sense of happening at any moment. And if, like the Thessalonians, we ignore the signs of the Lord's coming and misunderstand the nearness of his coming, we may also come to assume that Jesus has come or will come at any second. It is this particular false teaching that is confronted by the scripture passage before us. And so I've taken as the theme of these verses, and again, there's going to be several themes that arise um, in future sermons, but for this evening, the theme is the coming of the Lord. We want to look, first of all, at its nearness, 
Second, its supposed fulfillment, as we find it being described here by the, the Apostle Paul in the minds of the Thessalonians. Um, third, its unintended effect. And fourth, its unfulfilled signs. So first of all, its nearness. So from verse 1, talking now of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, um, we have no doubt that in these verses, Paul is talking about issues that have to do with the second coming of Jesus Christ and the gathering of his people on that day. He writes, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, so forth. Verse 2 refers to the day of the Lord, which the Thessalonians believe has come. Verse 8 tells us that the lawless one will be brought to nothing at the appearance of Jesus' coming. Verse 12 refers to the condemnation of unbelievers, which we take as a reference to judgment as part of the day of the Lord. So all of these verses are related to the coming of the Lord. This is the topic, this is the theme that is particularly on the mind of the apostle. If you can recall his first letter, Paul already spoke then to issues concerning the second coming of Christ and addressed misunderstandings that the Thessalonians had. In the first letter to the Thessalonians, in chapter 4, verse, verses 15 and following, read earlier, Paul addressed believers who were thinking that their loved ones who had died as believers were somehow, to some degree, going to miss out on the glories of the Lord's return. Paul assures them that Christ will be impartial, that all believers, those already dead and those alive at the Lord's coming, all will be blessed. No one will be disadvantaged. All believers will experience the resurrection power of Jesus Christ, giving them bodies fit for heaven. All will be recipients of the blessings connected with the return of our Lord. And then there was another end time issue that Paul deals with in chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians. Paul felt the need to instruct the Thessalonians about the timing of the Lord's coming. He tells them that they can't predict when it's going to take place. His coming will be sudden, he says, like the coming of a thief in the night. And so it's going to be a total surprise for many. At the same time, Paul tells us as believers that there is no reason why this day should surprise us like a thief. Knowing that Christ is returning, we can and we must be prepared. We must be looking for his coming. And the more that we do so, the less of a surprise his coming will be. Though we can never predict the exact time of his coming, we ought to be anticipating it, we ought to be thinking about it, we ought to be living in the light of it. A proper understanding of the Lord's return will lead us to, as other scriptures say, watch and pray. Well, apparently some in Thessalonica were speculating that Christ's appearance as Savior and Judge was imminent. In fact, as we read Paul's words to the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 3, we learn that the Thessalonians had taken a rather radical view regarding the timing of the Lord's return. Paul admonishes them for thinking that the day of the Lord had come. And the meaning of that expression is neither that the Lord had come and gone, nor that the Lord had already made a public appearance and was in the process of wrapping up history. The Greek word actually tells us that they believed the day of the Lord was at hand. And the idea is that the visible appearance of Christ, 
the resurrection of the dead, the judgment of all men, really all of the events having to do with the final fulfillment of the day of the Lord would be occurring at any moment. The problem was that they thought that the Lord's coming was imminent. Paul's instruction on the sudden coming of Christ had been taken to mean that they could predict his coming after all. Now, they weren't predicting the exact day and hour, but they were convinced his coming was imminent. They expected him to come sometime within the next second to just a short while, perhaps a couple of months from then, for sure within their lifetimes. And this belief was predictably having negative consequences for their day-to-day living. For example, at the time of the writing of of 1 Thessalonians, there were some in the church who were not working. They were being busybodies in other people's affairs. And Paul confronted them, but the problem continued to exist and will be addressed again in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 coming up. It's very possible that this problem was related to this misunderstanding about the Lord's return. Now, we aren't told this directly, but in both letters we are told about this problem of idleness in the context of Paul's discussion of the Lord's return. We have only to look to history to find examples of individuals who thought that the Lord's return was just around the corner, and as a result, they quit their jobs, they gathered on on hills to peer into heaven, thinking that at any moment they were going to see the Lord. And because there's always been this reaction by some to the perceived imminence of our Lord's coming It does not seem to us to be a reach to imagine that this was the problem with the Thessalonians. Their idleness would be a rather natural reaction to thinking that the Lord was going to appear at any moment. But is this belief of Christ's immediate coming what Paul was trying to teach when he told them that the coming of the Lord would be sudden and would take many people by complete surprise? Does the sudden and near coming of the Lord mean that he could come at the very next second in time? Well, the one does not necessarily follow from the other. In fact, one ought not to think that the one requires the other. But if a person is already inclined toward believing that Christ's coming is going to be at any moment, it is easy to imagine how Paul's teaching in 1 Thessalonians that Christ's coming is going to be sudden might be thought to lend support to this misunderstanding. It seems to be the thinking process of some in Thessalonica. They have misinterpreted Paul's teaching on the sudden coming of the Lord as saying that Christ, uh, that that his coming, uh, that that he could appear at any moment. Convinced that the great question that was confusing some in the church there in Thessalonica, a question that continues to be a, a, a A question um, that continues to be a problem for some believers today is this. How are we to understand the nearness of Christ's coming? The words near, at hand, soon, these are the words that are used throughout Scripture. Mark 13, 29 says, So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Well, see what things? Um, Jesus has just spoken about false Christs. He's spoken about wars and rumors of war, earthquakes, famines, persecution, the gospel being proclaimed worldwide, the abomination of desolation from an antichrist, tribulation, signs in the heavens. 
Philippians 4, 5 says, the Lord is at hand. James 5, 8, you also be patient. And by the way, that's a different word there in Philippians 4, 5 than what we have in our translation this evening. So I don't want there to be any confusion when it says that the Thessalonians um, believed that the day of the Lord had come. And I've just said that they believed it was at hand, that it was imminent. The word in Philippians 4, 5 is not a word of imminence. It's a word really that would better be translated near. The Lord is near. Um, James 5.8 says, You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. The same thing there. Uh, 1 Peter 4.7, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. 1 John 2.18, Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Revelation 22, verses 12 and 20 record Jesus saying, I am coming soon, or I am coming quickly. For many people, then and today, nearness must mean immediate. For Christ's coming to be soon or near, many insist that Christ's coming then must be within the next few days or the next few weeks or months, only a few years at the most. Postmillennialists say nearness can't mean anything more than 40 years. They say his coming is imminent. It makes perfect sense, right, that the devil would want God's people to think this way so that when Christ's coming takes thousands of years, as it has so far, then God's people will begin to doubt God's word and promise. The devil wants us to be discouraged. He wants us to give up hope. And as years go by, his wish is that we will lose sight of the Lord's coming and live only for the present. His desire is that we will forget about our hope in the coming of our Lord that we will be unprepared then for when it does happen. The fact of the matter is that Jesus' coming is near, even though nearly 2,000 years have passed. It, It still remains soon. He is coming quickly. To understand these things properly requires us to take into account God's perspective on history. God's perspective on history is always in relation to spiritual matters and in relation to the fulfillment of his plan of salvation in Jesus Christ. And because the coming of the Lord Jesus, his second coming, is the next big event in history, it is near. Jesus is, as scripture says, coming quickly because he is working as fast as he can to bring history to a close. But things must happen first as part of his plan. But even now, Christ is coming. The wording of scripture is not that Christ will come, future tense, as though it's entirely a future event. The wording is in the present tense. Jesus is coming. Right now, the Lord Jesus is coming. And uh, when we are to consider what Jesus is doing in history to wrap up all things, to bring his people to glory, these things are all a part of his coming. There are a number of analogies that can be used. If I am planning to travel on an airplane to visit relatives in another state, someone might argue that my coming is when I make my appearance at their home. But I could rightly argue that my coming included my packing of my bags, and even before that, the buying of my plane ticket, as well as my getting on the plane and the time spent flying on the plane. It's all a part of my coming. And as soon as I began these preparations, I would be right in saying that my coming is soon. 
And in a similar way, the coming of the Lord is a process that has begun. The countdown to his actual appearance has been started. It is thus correct to say that the Lord's coming is near. Well, returning back to the Thessalonian letters, 1 Thessalonians 5.1 is Paul talking about the day of the Lord. And there he says, now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. So Paul himself had either had given, um, himself had given the Thessalonians instruction about how the Lord's coming would relate to time and human history, or they knew these things from what Christ had taught. 2 Thessalonians 2.5 also refers to teaching already given. Paul asks, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? In both instances, Paul doesn't repeat the details to us of what the Thessalonians knew. We sure wish Paul would have repeated that for us. Um, But he doesn't do that. He, He assumes the Thessalonians remember the teaching that they received. And yet, are we totally left in the dark about what they had been taught? Um, I would argue that even without the the specifics, we can come to a reasonable conclusion about what some of that teaching must have involved. Since the Thessalonians knew about the, the times and seasons of the Lord's coming, surely they had been taught that the Lord's coming is near. After all, that is a basic truth, um, basic to the whole subject of the Lord's second coming. It's a, the nearness of the Lord's coming is taught in many passages of Scripture, even by the Lord himself. I believe it was the Thessalonians' misunderstanding of the nearness of the Lord's coming that Paul is now addressing in our passage. Such a misunderstanding fits with what we read at the end of verse 2 about how the Thessalonians believe that the day of the Lord has come, or as I have indicated, the translation would probably better be the day of the Lord is at hand. So it's supposed fulfillment. We naturally wonder what these believers were thinking. What did they mean the day of the Lord had come? If we just took those words on the face, um, did they believe that Jesus Christ had already returned? Um, This is possible. Um, You know, if, if they were entertaining the idea of some kind of a secret rapture and they had been excluded, um, that kind of a belief would be very frightful and disturbing. But, Many commentators, most commentators, point us in a different direction of interpretation. They insist that it was quite obvious to all that the Lord had not returned in the full sense. Nobody was thinking that Jesus had appeared bodily. So then what did they mean by speaking of the day of the Lord as already come? Uh, What helps us to understand their thinking is to realize that in Scripture, the day of the Lord is a complex idea that is used in connection with many events having to do with the last days. If we look at how scripture uses the phrase day of the, uh, the day of the Lord, that the entire era starting with the Lord's first coming can be called the day of the Lord. From that point of view, it is correct to say that the day of Christ has come. It's interesting to note that in the old Testament, the prophet spoke of the day of the Lord as near and based on, Their place in the timeline of redemptive history, we would understand the day of the Lord to include the Lord's first coming in his incarnation. That's what they saw as near. It's clear then that to think that the day of the Lord has come 
doesn't necessarily mean that one believes we are down to the very last days of history and Christ is going to appear for a second time at any moment. If the Thessalonians were simply thinking that they were in the era of the Lord's second coming and that his coming is the next great event, then of course there would be no problem in saying that the day of the Lord was already at hand or, or even imminent. At the same time, if uh, this was what they were thinking, we would not expect them to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed. We wouldn't, we wouldn't understand why Paul would feel the need to give them further instruction. So this is not what they were believing. Their beliefs were apparently focused on the very end of time. Um, scripture often associates certain events with the day of the Lord that are going to take place right close to the very end. In fact, usually the concept of the day of the Lord in the New Testament brings to mind the very end of time and the actual appearance of our Lord. But even if we are focused on the very end, the day of the Lord involves a number of related events. There's the judgment of all men. There's the resurrection of the dead. There's the the casting of the devil and his angels into hell. There is the destruction of the heavens and earth and the making of a new heaven and new earth. There are also signs that are to take place very close to the, to the end, including the great tribulation and apostasy and the reign of the Antichrist. In some, the concept of the day of the Lord can be understood very broadly or very, very narrowly. And apparently the Thessalonians were thinking of that day very narrowly in terms of the very end. They believed that the final stages of the day of the Lord had arrived They believed that they were in the very last days of history. They were thinking that Christ would appear any day now. His actual appearing was just a matter of a short period of time. I'm certain that you can understand how believing such things might have an effect on a person's thinking and and life beyond just becoming an occasion for idleness. And so it is that in Thessalonica, some were shaken in mind Some were alarmed, some were both. This is why Paul writes, We ask you not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. These reactions of being shaken in mind or alarmed, these were not good. These were certainly not the intended effects of believing that the coming of the Lord would be sudden and was near. Be shaken in mind, that's an expression that refers to being unstable in how one is thinking. And it brings to mind a ship that is being blown here and there by waves and wind. It refers to a person being unbalanced. It refers to a person being overly preoccupied or overly excited about something. And you can imagine how you and I would react if we were convinced that Christ was going to come within the next few months at the most. Can you imagine what that would be like? It would be all we could think about, all we would talk about. Many of us would quit our jobs exactly as we see happening in Thessalonica. For many, this excitement would turn to a kind of frenzy. I can picture some of us getting quite worked up. We wouldn't know what to do with our time. We'd probably go almost bonkers with anticipation. We would have a hard time sleeping. For many, this would be a time of confusion, although also a time of great joy and excitement. But no doubt if we were shaken in mind, we would be of no earthly good. Our earthly responsibilities would fall by the wayside in this preoccupation with our future plans. 
For others, they would be alarmed, worried, anxious, agitated. This would be a very natural reaction if you believe that the day of the Lord is at hand, and especially if you were believing that you were being excluded from seeing Christ and sharing in his glory. We can also anticipate how the belief that the day of the Lord was at hand and that his appearance could be at any moment would lead to the believers being alarmed. For what are they going to think when Christ doesn't appear and doesn't wrap up everything as they figure? What's going to be their reaction when the days turn into weeks and the weeks into months and the months into years and still Christ has not returned? It's not too difficult to see how this would be devastating to the faith and hope of those who were convinced that the day of the Lord had come. What is your reaction to the fact that it has been nearly 2,000 years since Christ said his coming was near and that he would come again soon? The nearness of the Lord's return must not be thought to be contradicted by those scriptures which teach us that there are a number of things according to God's plan that must first take place before Jesus appears before our eyes. Matthew 24 refers to a number of signs of the Lord's coming and the end of the age. There will be many who say they are the Christ and many will be deceived. There will be wars and rumors of wars, famines, pestilences, and earthquakes, a Greek word that includes actual earthquakes but also refers to tempests at sea, tsunamis, and hurricanes. There will be terrible persecution of Christians. There will be false prophets and antichrists. And if you stop and think about it, these particular events, the, these things are things that have taken place all throughout human history. If, you were, if we were only looking for some fulfillment of these signs, then we would be right in thinking that Christ could come at any moment. Which is why Jesus, even in Matthew 24, told his disciples that these things would happen within their generation. These things have always happened. But Jesus didn't say these things were only going to happen prior to the destruction of Jerusalem and then all would be over. We have in fact seen these signs reappear again and again throughout history since then. This confirms the teaching in fact of the book of Revelation that these signs are going to become in fact um, more often. They're going, to, they're going to occur more often and with greater intensity the closer we get to Christ's public appearance in power and glory to the whole world. The point is that in all ages, these signs have been evident. People have often taken them of, as evidence that the Lord's return is just around the corner. And yet there are some signs of the Lord's coming that we need to recognize have not yet been fulfilled. For instance, Jesus also said that the end will come only after the gospel has been preached in all the world as a witness. Now, there is no doubt that in our day, two, nearly 2,000 years later, that this particular sign is nearing fulfillment. Some might argue that this sign has been fulfilled. We can check that particular one off the list, which would mean that Christ's coming is just that much nearer. The Church of Jesus Christ has, by a great missionary effort, reached to the far corners of this globe, and yet there would be some who would argue that there are still many groups yet to be reached, but yet that fulfillment is coming soon. We can see it. Nevertheless, we must see, yes, that there has been progress in the spread of the gospel throughout the world. This is a sign that the Lord is coming. And still we know he is not going to be coming at any moment because this is not the only sign that awaits fulfillment. 
Jesus spoke of a time of tribulation just before his return, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. This is an event that is associated by Christ with what Paul talks about here in 2 Thessalonians, a period of rebellion or apostasy, as well as the rule of the Antichrist. Paul refers to this coming apostasy as the rebellion. He's referring to the Antichrist when he speaks of the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction and the lawless one. He is a person who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes a seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Rebellion and Antichrist, of which Paul writes, must not be confused with the various forms of apostasy and antichrists that have appeared throughout history. Paul is talking about a falling away like nothing the world has ever known before. He is talking about an individual who is worshipped as God by all the people of this world, except, of course, by God's true followers. His reign, Christians refusing to bow to the antichrist, these are what, in fact, will account for the great tribulation. And believers will be persecuted on a scale never known before. The church will appear weak and vulnerable to destruction. And Paul wants the Thessalonians to know that because these events have yet to take place, the day of Christ has not come. They are not at the very end of time when Christ is going to appear at any moment. They are thinking this way because they have, as verse 3 says, been deceived. They have been shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from Paul and his companions. By a spirit is meant a prophecy. It's meant a, a revelation from the spiritual realm by which someone is claiming to have a teaching from God. By a spoken word is a sermon or some kind of a speech. And by letter, of course, is meant a written communication. It's possible that Paul is referring to 1 Thessalonians and how they misunderstood what he said there. But more than likely, some false teacher claiming to have received a prophecy has by means of a sermon or by some forged letter, supposedly from Paul and his companions, convinced some in the church that the day of Christ was at hand. This false teaching was being circulated and was causing trouble. People of God, we still live in an era in which these very same things of which Paul speaks remain to be fulfilled. To any that might try to tell you Christ could come at any moment, your reply ought to be, well, has the rebellion taken place yet? Has the man of lawlessness been revealed? Not only have these things not taken place in Paul's day, they have not yet taken place in our day. And so the conclusion is that the day of the Lord, the day of Christ, cannot be at hand. It is near, but it's not at hand. You must not be deceived into thinking that the Lord is going to appear at any moment. And Lord willing, we will in a future sermon consider in greater detail the meaning and significance of this rebellion and this man of lawlessness so we can recognize these things when they come. But for now, notice that it is the Lord's will for you to live out your life here on earth, faithfully meeting the responsibilities that he has given you. When the Lord redeemed you and me, his will was not to take us immediately to be with him in heaven. This was a decision that the Lord made. It had nothing to do with some kind of an inadequacy with the work of salvation in Christ. Um, our Lord's death on the cross was a sacrifice that fully satisfied the debt of our sin. 
In the way of repenting of your sin, in the way way of trusting in Christ, his righteousness has been put to your account. On the basis of his person and work, you are worthy of heaven. From a legal point of view, you have every right to be with him in heaven. And this is what, of course, will happen to you, child of God, uh, if you were to die. But until the day of your death or until the Lord returns, God's will is for you to serve him here on earth convinced by what happened in Thessalonica that it is good that we cannot figure out when Christ is coming. The Lord wants us to live balanced lives. On the one hand, he doesn't want us to lose sight of his coming where we think only of this world, which is why he gives us signs to remind us that his coming is near and to inspire our hope in his coming. On the other hand, he also doesn't want us to think that we can predict that his coming is going to be at any moment so that we are of no earthly good. And this is why he reminds us that there are things yet to be accomplished before the end. Do not be deceived by the doctrines of enemies who want us to think that the Lord is delayed in his coming. Our Lord's death upon the cross proves his love for his people. He came the first time to suffer. Surely he will come again to claim his victory and to bring to full fruition what he has already accomplished. Our Lord is faithful. And you can be certain that he will return. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for the hope that we have of the Lord's return. We thank you that he is coming quickly and that his coming is near. Lord, give us wisdom to see the signs of his coming and help us to respond appropriately. That we would not be shaken in mind or alarmed. May we not grow discouraged by hardships leading up to Christ's, uh, Christ's coming. And may we not be caught up in earthly life such that we forget to watch and pray. Lord Jesus, our desire is that you will come quickly. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.